it please the court, counsel, I'm Harold Frederick. My colleague on the brief is Eric Johnson. We're both associates with the Freiberger Law Firm in Duluth, and our firm represents the appellants in this proceeding. I'm going to start by listing four principles of law that the court has established and enforced over the years that apply to this case. The first principle is highest and best use. The second principle is, in this case, construction interferences are determined at the date of taking. Later I'll explain why. And then the full extent most injurious use rule number three. And finally, under Humphrey versus Strum, it is project interferences, not merely interferences associated with the property taken. So I'll start with highest and best use. In Minnesota, it's the Andy Anda case over at Fargo involving the Moorhead Economic Development Authority. And in that case, the court said the rule is highest and best use rule regardless of actual use. The court cited Olson versus United States, a 1934 opinion of the US Supreme Court where the court said does not depend on the uses to which he has devoted his land. That's the key part of this case. Consider, consideration of all suitable uses. In Olson versus United States, the Supreme Court cited as authority for the highest and best use rule, both Nichols on eminent domain and Lewis on eminent domain. And we'll hear from the two of them in connection with rule three, the fullest extent Counsel, do you think that the principles you're asking us to um, announce in this decision are questions of first impression for us um, specifically? Well, the fullest extent rule is of first impression. I agree. The highest and best use, I mean, those are sort of basic, basic eminent domain principles. But the result in this case, what I'm, I'm wondering about is, do you think that this is a question of first impression? Well, the construction interference part is not a matter of first impression, but the fullest extent, highest and best use rule is arguably a matter of first impression. And when I'll talk about that, I'll bring up a, point, a fine point in that regard. But fullest extent, it's fair to say, is a matter of first impression in Minnesota. And counsel, as I understood your argument, um, I thought you were making the argument that Casey actually the full enjoyment rule was very similar to the fullest extent. But now I hear you're asking for a. No, a, I'm. That's that's the point I was making when I said I'll go into it further when I get to that point. Could you get I, to that point now? Because I think that's one of the key. I'm sorry to direct you, but I think that's one of the key points. And uh, what's your best argument for the rule that the rule in Casey? Um, is equivalent to the rules from other states because when I read Casey, I don't think I don't think Casey has ever been cited as the full enjoyment rule, except for the maybe the Court of Appeals opinion in this case. And it seemed to me that in Casey, it was you know one sentence that was basically describing the right that the landowner had. In that case, they had a tunnel under the road, and when it became impossible for them to use that tunnel then that's when compensation had to be paid. Yes. So, so what's the best argument that 
that Casey really is setting forth a, a rule similar to other jurisdictions. Well, the, the, the court in Casey said that the underlying fee owner has, to, has the right to use its property subject to the condemning authority's right uh, to use the property in full enjoyment. And, you know, our, our contention is that full enjoyment is exactly the same as full extent. And I'm, I'm not saying that there's a case in Minnesota that applies, um, you know, the full extent rule per se, but certainly full enjoyment is so close to full utilization uh, as to, seems to me to be equivalent. And in my argument on that point, remember uh, what the Court of Appeals said uh, in the case. The Court of Appeals said that the full extent most injurious use cases cited offer some support for the Elberts theory. But the Elberts cite no Minnesota case that defines a taking in a way they urge. Rather, the court said by contrast, that's the key word, contrast, the underlying fee owner retains the right to use the land for any lawful purpose consistent with full enjoyment of the easement. If you think about contrast, contrast means, you know, that, that things are different from one another. Black in contrast to white. You see, black in contrast to white. Well, certainly full enjoyment is not significantly in, con in con you know, contrast to full extent most injurious use. It's the same concept. That's our argument. Counsel, from, counsel, the damages to me seem to be speculative. Can you tell me why I'm wrong about that? Well, because you have to, you have to, you think they're speculative? In, in a construction interference case, you go about proving up damages. Let's talk about construction interference. In this case, and the only way you can do it when the property is not being used, you know, for its highest and best use, what you do is uh, you prove up, it's a before and after test, right? So you start by proving up the highest and best use, then you prove up to the jury, this is a jury question, you prove up the before value of the property, in this case $2.6 million, then as MnDOT insists, you establish the conditions or facts that exist at the date of taking that suggest or indicate the effect that construction during the course of the project will have on the highest and best use. And in this case, the highest and best user is a developer of the property who's gonna divide up the property into separate lots on the upper side with views of Lake Superior and lakefront front, uh, lots on the lower side. And the point is that what's known or knowable, that's what MnDOT says, that highest and best user will exercise due diligence when he learns of the project, and he'll find out that which is known or knowable. And then we have to satisfy the jury. It's our burden to satisfy the jury, the effect that that will have on the willingness of the of the highest and best user to pay for the property. It was worth 2.6 million before. Then he, he does his due diligence and he discovers these known or knowable 
conditions that exist that are going to affect his use during the course of the project. And now he's going to want to pay less for the property uh, than he would have had there been no project. It's not, it, it's not speculative in that we have to prove it up. We'll put on an expert, um, you know, who, who will testify as to the effect, the dollar damage, uh, that the expected construction activities during the course of the project uh, will have on the willingness of the highest and best user to buy the property. He's, we're going to argue to the jury, we're going to argue to the jury that this highest and best use developer, once he learns about the conditions that are going to be in place during the course of the project, he's going to want to pay less for the property. And we'll have someone that'll testify as to that difference. We don't have to convince you of the difference. We have to convince the jury that there's a before and after difference in the willingness of the highest and best user developer, what he'll be pay for the property. I want but, to talk. But council doesn't Blaine building suggest that you don't even get to put on that evidence when when in that case, the, pe the people were mad because a median was put in and so they lost access from one side of the, of the highway. You know, people couldn't easily get to their property anymore. That's but not a construction interference case. That's a median case. The court in Plain Building said, you're entitled to construction interferences. So for example, if you could show that during the time they're building the median, it's affecting your property. That would be construction interferences. The presence of, of the, of the meeting, median has nothing to do with construction interferences. There's a long time standing rule in Minnesota that, you, that while you may be harmed by the presence of a median on University Avenue, you don't get compensated for it. That's got nothing to do with the construction interference case. This is well covered but doesn't by it depend on access because um, there's long-standing Minnesota law that access is loss of access is a bundle of right and um, you have to you know you have to show um, you have to show that you don't have reasonable access anymore before there's even damages that's that's not the rule in construction interferences in, in the Hold up a minute. In the Strom case, that's a construction interference case. There was no taking of access in Strom. That's yes, there, there were like three and a half years of construction in Strom where the court uh, specifically said that the access was tortuous and it changed and it, and it affected the, there the party stipulated as to certain damages that actually lowered the rental rate in the building. But the court never said at any time that there was a taking of access. There was no taking of access in Strom. Those were interferences, construction interferences that affected the use and enjoyment of the remainder. You know, there's no taking involved in a construction interference case. It's construction interferences. That's what the words mean. Interferences with the use and enjoyment of the remainder during the course of construction. No taking is involved. It has to be to the remainder of the property. Well, sure, that's what we're going to show here, here that my highest in use developer 
once he learns that which is knowable or reasonably knowable, he's going to say to himself, I can't pay as much now that I know that if I were to buy the property during the course of construction, these things that are known or knowable would occur and they would interfere with the use and enjoyment of the remainder. You see, you see that it's construct So you, st you cited uh, Strom. Any other uh, cases you would point us to that you think would be particularly persuasive on this construction interference issue? Well, there's a whole line of cases in Minnesota on construction. There are, there's a number of them uh, listed in the amicus brief, construction interference. If you read the amicus brief, that's what they're so excited and concerned about, is that the, the Court of Appeals imposed a new rule that's not involved in construction interferences. Construction interference means interference. See, in, in the Strom, Strom case, that's different than our case. There you have the highest and best use and the owner's use is exactly the same. So fine, in that case, you can use the actual interferences to show that you're damaged. In a situation where the owner's use is not the highest and best use, you have to go back to the date of taking and determine what effect the prospective known or knowable conditions are going to have on the willingness of the buyer, that highest and best use buyer, to what he's going to be willing to pay for the property. You know, I, I don't want to put you in a position of defending the amicus, but, it, but it's interesting. Um, there's another issue unrelated to what we're discussing right now that, that is raised in the amicus brief, and uh, I'd like to get your view on that, and that is the point that the state makes that um, Minnesota is an order-first state. Uh, looks to chapter 117, points out, the state points out that um, under their theory, you have to first get um, an order from the district court. So, so I'm, I'm abandoning construction interference and going back to the earlier issue. Um, uh, Meadey argues uh, to the contrary. Uh, what's your view on that and what's your best argument there? What's the question, Your Honor? The, que uh, the question has to do with the state's argument that you first look to um, Chapter 117 for an order first as to all takings. Uh, and I'm looking at footnote 11 of uh, the state's brief, uh, and um, the state points out the Minnesota Eminent Domain Institute uh, argues uh, that Minnesota is not an order first state. So the question is, what's your best response to that argument? All right, you, know, you want to talk first about construction interferences? I, I'm, I'm jumping ship on you, and I'm going back to this question of, um, you know, first principles, which okay. is, do you, is the state right, and if they aren't, you're going to tell me they're not right. I know that. Tell me why the state is not right uh, when it argues that you have to first get an order from the district court under uh, Chapter 117.075. There's no need to get an order. In a construction interference case, what's involved is the taking of the easements. That's included in the order. We're trying to determine the damages that are due for the taking of the easements all across the property. That's what's involved in the taking. And in a construction interference case, as you're determining, as you're determining the consequence of that which was taken, 
not that which was not taken. Mm -hmm. These easements across the front of the property, you have two issues to deal with. First of all, the construction interference. We're not saying there's a taking of access. We're saying that the construction activity will interfere with the highest and best use, and the jury measures the, jury measures the extent of that damage. And in our case, what occurred is both the trial court and the Court of Appeals did not apply the highest and best use. They got caught up in the Strom decision, and, all, and, and they don't realize that this is a case in which you have to first decide the highest and best use of the property. And, and the highest and best use is that use which that developer is going to make of the property. And then you measure the damages based on the highest and best use. Council, I'm trying to figure out what the actual construction disruption is. I think you said just a moment ago, it's not that there wasn't access to the property. In no. fact, the contract between MnDOT and the, the contractor required that ac reasonable access be provided to the property. Am I, am I right about that? No. <clears throat> it, it said that to the extent there is existing activity going on the, on the property, you must provide reasonable access. But then there's Justice Yetka's opinion that we've got in our brief in the Olmar case. He says they, the black letter law is they take absolutely and unconditionally. You see? So we can't take into account what the contract provided. Absolutely, you can't take. That's, that's Olmar. That's the basic rule of Olmar. That's after the fact. They're, try, they're trying to chisel down the damages due by bringing up something that wasn't in the taking order. If they want to give us the, the right of reasonable access to the property, the case law says that they've got to get that yeah, in the but, taking but order. The, the entire theory of these damages is that a knowledgeable developer would not go ahead and buy the property because of the construction disruption. Wouldn't a knowledgeable developer take a look at the contract between MnDOT and the contractor, which is a public document, in terms of figuring out, am I, should I try to buy this property now, or should I wait till the construction is done? The, the buyer is not obligated to do, do that. I know the buyer's not obligated, but I'm asking whether a knowledgeable potential buyer would do that. What would he discover? Discover well, that in the contract, it provides a reasonable a right of reasonable access. Doesn't say that in the contract. What does it say? Well, it says under certain circumstances, you have to make the uh, owner of the property available, and if there's commercial uses involved, you have to provide. It doesn't deal at all with the with the question of what happens in this circumstance. We've got easements all across the front of the property on both sides. So you're saying, notwithstanding the fact that the driveway was open, and notwithstanding the fact there's something in the contract about reasonable access. See, uh, your, your expert's te testimony is predicated on the idea that still that's, that's not enough for a knowledgeable developer. What, what occurred here in my argument is you, you threw me off, all of you, when you didn't let me talk. I didn't do that. We, I, I don't think it's hard to throw you off, Mr. Frederick. You didn't <laughs> let me talk about highest and best use. In a highest and best use case, where, where there is, in our case, the property owner is not using the property for its highest and best use. There's never going to be any actual interference during the course of the con construction 
because the Elberts were not using the property. You can't have any interference with something that you're not using. You have to go back and figure out the highest and best use. And the highest and best use is one which you anticipate at the date of taking. Mintot uh, says that's the only way to do it. So is the highest and best use of this property development as of the time of the taking, or is it development down the road? Not down the road at all. That, that's, that occurs if you're using the property as in Strom for its highest and best use. Then fine. Why wouldn't you put in evidence of what actually occurred during construction? This is a case where the people are not using the property for its highest and best use. There's never going to be any construction interference during the course of the work. It's the fact that the developer, knowing, does his due diligence, find out what's going to occur, right? He finds out what's going to happen, and then he's going to pay less for the property than he would have had he not become aware of these construction interferences. If, if we can't get that across to the court, we're in deep trouble here. This is a highest and best use case, not an owner's use case. And you have to think in your mind, you got to get screwed into your head. You have to imagine the highest and best use if you get stuck, Your Honor. I can feel the screw going in right now. <laughs> I, I, I no, take your point. You see my point? If you... Didn't the district court consider this and rejected it at the very end of the district court's opinion? It, it said, you know, the assumptions that a buyer and seller would not make unsupported assumptions about access and would perform enough due diligence to understand the property rights acquired, the easement, and to understand what was not acquired and would further perform enough due diligence to understand the, the obligations of the pro project contractor. Highest and best use. Yeah. You're already thinking in terms of the actual use. This case needs to be decided on highest best use. And there's never going to be any construction interference if you're not using the property. Think about that developer. That developer, this is the rule that MnDOT says, the only way you can prove up construction interference is at the date of taking. And they happen to be right if the owner is not using the property for its highest and best use. The only way you can prove it up is at the date of taking. You then do exactly what MnDOT says that you do, and you look at knowable facts. I say knowable conditions. What are the conditions that are known at the date of taking, and how will they affect the you highest? Take, do you take into account that the, whole, the purpose of this project was to fix Highway 61, make it a more usable highway, so the developer would know that they're going to have better a better highway to, to get their people there? That's not involved in this. We're trying to figure out the damage associated with the taking. Don't you see that? But is that one of the, one of the value, the factors that would, would go to valuation, that you're no, going to have a great a, new road? No, the case law is clear on that. You can't, you can't take into account the fact that there will be a better property because of the highway. We're determining damages for that which, that, that which was taken. There's no case in Minnesota or probably anywhere where you take into account that there's a better highway. The public gets the benefit of the, of the, of the highway. The owner suffers the burden of the taking and needs to be compensated. 
highest and best use, determine the damages at the date of taking, that's what they say, in a case of uh, where the property owner is not using the property for its highest and best use, then you determine at the date of taking those facts or conditions that are known or knowable that that highest and best use buyer developer will learn about and he will cause him to pay less. Now you have to let me get to the fullest extent most injurious use rule. Is, is that fair? In the fullest extent most injurious use rule, um, here's, here's what occurs. It took easements all across the front of the property. We don't know at the data taking the, the extent to which the condemning authority is going to make use of the property taken. We have to make some assumptions. We can't assume that they're going to go lightly uh, on the property owner and be accommodating. We can't assume that. So the rule is over 100 years ago, and it's supported in our case by case law, the treatise writers, Mendoz has not a single case that opposes the fullest, the, the most injurious fullest extent rule. Not one single case. So I don't think you have any alternative in this case. You need to apply the fullest extent most injurious rule. And I'd like to go back a little bit to construction interferences. I want to show exactly that the court was not thinking of highest and best use. Here's what the Kyle judge said in his memorandum. Notwithstanding the Elbert's claim for loss of access, there is no documented instance of actual loss of or interference with access to the Elbert property during or after the project. And the only record evidence of any visit to the property during the project whatsoever by any member of the Elbert family is July 1, 2014. He's thinking about how the Elberts were using the property, the trial judge is. He's not thinking about highest and best use. And then they threw us out on summary judgment on our construction interference claim. We've got a right to go to the jury and have them decide that issue. Well, counsel, you've got a right to go to the jury if you've got an expert opinion with proper foundation. Yes. And in the last paragraph of uh, the district court judge's order, um, he says your expert does, hasn't laid proper, you don't have proper foundation through your expert. What is our scope of review on that determination that foundation for an expert opinion is lacking? This is a trial de novo. We have, we, this is on appeal from the commissioner's award. It, don't, don't you see that point? We, we get I do see that point, but I'm wondering how it affects what our scope of review is for um, the district court judge's determination that an expert opinion lacks foundation. He, he says that it lacks foundation? He does. Um, he says, any opinion concerning diminution of value due to the temporary easement taken must first have as the testifying expert's foundation a series of assumptions that he says are not met here. So well, it's essentially a foundation uh, determination, isn't it? We're talking about construction interferences. Yes. The way you go out about proving up the case is, is that you offer an expert opinion that the presence of the construction interferences will 
construction activity will interfere with the highest and best use of the property. He didn't understand highest and best use. He's operating on the fact that only one Elbert was ever on the property during the course of construction. He, 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 the wheels fell off for the trial judge when he assumes that, that he decides the case based upon the fact that the property is not being used. He's got to get screwed into his head the fact that it's the highest and best use and not the owner's use or lack of use. That's Olson versus the United States. And if he can think in highest and best use terms, then it seems to me we're in good shape. Now, I want to talk about project interferences a bit in Strum. For the first time, an appellate court has been provided with all of the record that was before the court in Strum. And it absolutely establishes the fact that the court was talking about project interferences, not with interferences um, based upon changes in the property making, taken. You have to go to the trial judge's memorandum in that case. The trial judge first wrote a short brief on uh, eminent domain, and then she said, the court finds that the state's construction of I-394 has interfered with the possession, enjoyment, and value of the Woodbridge property. Such interference is a taking with corresponding right to compensation under the Constitution. So the Strom case is a project interference case, not interferences based on changes made to the property taken. And I think I can't stress enough that you have to start out by recognizing what the highest and best use of the property is. And, and once you understand that you've got to consider and decide this case based on highest and best use, not the fact that an Elbert was only on the property once, July 1, 2014, that's got nothing to do with what's involved in this case. It's a highest and best use issue. And if, if the court understands that that's the case, the court will understand that there's a basis for an opinion testimony that there is damages to the remainder based upon the known or noble construction interferences. Thank you, counsel. You have five minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Furchie. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court, my name is Matthew Furchie, and I represent the respondent in this case, the State of Minnesota, by its Commissioner of Transportation. Your Honors, through statute and decades of case law, Minnesota has created a well-established framework for adjudicating what property rights are acquired by public authorities through eminent domain and the just compensation paid to landowners for the property acquired. In this case, appellants ask this court to abandon that framework, to allow an unsupported assumed claim for $305,000 in damages for an assumed and unsubstantiated landlocking of their property to be presented to the jury. Appellant's position is untenable with Minnesota's longstanding precedent, and it eviscerates eminent domain principles established by this court that protect both landowners 
and the public in these special proceedings and provide clarity in these proceedings and to the public property ownership records. This court should affirm the district court and the Court of Appeals exclusion of the assumed access damages for at least two reasons. First, the right of access in Minnesota is a distinct property right that is not taken in this proceeding. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit here about the amicus brief. Uh, they point to Underwood and Wheeler um, and I think a couple of other cases uh, where as a matter of construction interference, access issues, um, our court said um, those are issues properly considered by the jury. Um, why are they wrong about that? Well, Your Honor, the construction-related interferences was first recognized and established as a potential severance damages in this court's decision in Strom. But what is at issue here, Your Honor, if you look at the request for relief, is not a triable fact for the jury. What the Elberts are requesting, if you look at their conclusions in both their briefs, is a legal instruction to the jury that they must assume that the use of the easements would be such that access across the easements to the remainder would not be available. They are not asking to present evidence to the jury of uh, disruptions in access. They're asking for a legal instruction from the court. And I would point the court to uh, the reply brief on page 13 where the Elberts concede that uh, the Elberts quote do not claim that construction interference prevented access to the remainder of the property. If there is no evidence that there's any construction interference to access to the remainder of their property what they're asking for is a sea change in the law in Minnesota. But what they're asking for is an analysis of the highest and best. So they're not asking for, they're not saying that there was no access to the property. They've never, I don't think they've ever said that. What they're saying is that if we were to sell this to a developer, they would see this would be a problem for them, assuming that the fullest extent law rule applies. And, and so there is a, a damages to them because of the easement not because they've been restricted, because their access rights have been taken away. I mean, I think you're talking past each other. And so why are they wrong about the fact that this is the highest and best use case, and if that's the case, then this other cascade of, of issues, do you disagree that it's the highest and best use case? Uh, no, Your Honor, this and is do not you a, do you, It's not a highest and best use case? No, Your Honor, okay. it is not. Tell me why that is. If you look at the record, there's really no dispute as to what the highest and best use of the property would be. Which well, is what? Both appraisers agree that it would be subdivided into separate larger residential lots. So you're agreeing with them on that point? That that is the highest and best use. Yes. And, what, and do you also agree that then that is judged at the time of the taking? Correct, Your Honor. And that's clear under this court's decision in ANDA and several other decisions throughout decades of case law. But okay. These, so we're in agreement, the parties are in agreement on those two points. And so then the next argument that they make is that then you have to look at the fullest extent. And I think that's probably where there's a disagreement here. That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. There is no adoption of the fullest extent or most injurious standard so, in this state. So how do you, how do you test... If, if, if you're testing at the time of the taking, how do you test whether, how, the, how, how do you look at what the construction is actually going to do? I mean, you don't know that. That's something in the future. As this court has indicated in ANDA, the date of taking occurs at a specific date and moment in time. And that's the date of taking. And in this case, that's June 28, 2013. 
In ANDA, this court outlines a great deal of argument from, this, uh, from other states in considering how to deal with environmental contamination in that case. And what this court established was that we look at the conditions that exist at the time of the taking. Uh, we don't look past that date. The date of take is not a moving target, as somewhat alluded to by the amicus in this case, where we, you know, we can consider things that happen after the date of take if, if it happens. They make the date of take a moving target. This court has been clear. It happens on a specific moment in time. In this case, on that specific moment in time, we have just the taking that's been authorized in the district court's order. 0.71 acres of permanent easement and 3.29 acres of temporary easement for five years. That's the condition of the taking. Then we make the highest and best use analysis, of which there is no dispute in this case, Your Honor. What we have then, pointing to the district court's order, that a reasonable, willing buyer and willing seller would consider the facts that exist on that date. They look at the order granting petition. The right of access is not acquired in any respect on a permanent or temporary basis. So we know that the owners, the Elberts, maintain the right of access. They could sell that right of access along with the whole rest of the property to a developer, and the developer keeps that stick in the bundle. They cannot assume, as the appraiser in this case for the appellants uh, assumed, that the property has lost entire use for 1.5 years. The $305,000 in damages stems from the rental value of the entire 115 approximate acres of the property for 1.5 years. They're making the public pay the rental value of the entire property for that period on the assumption that it is entirely landlocked and the use is not available for that period. There's it sounds no to me like a jury issue. That is not I mean, they have an expert, you have an expert. Our court in the last couple of years has, we've reversed a lot of summary judgments and said jury issue, jury issue, jury issue. Why isn't this a jury issue? Because they're not asking for the trier effect to determine it. If you look at the prayer for relief in each conclusion from their briefs, they're asking for a legal instruction that the jury must assume that access is destroyed. There's nothing for the jury to consider here. There's no facts presented of, well, well, this happened on this date or this might happen on this date. There's no basis in the record on the date of take to make the extraordinary assumption that they're requesting here. They want a legal instruction from this court that access must be assumed to be not available. No basis in any precedent from this court allows that, not even under Strom. What about the Minnesota Constitution? which provides a broader right to property owners than the United States Constitution. I mean, it provides that you get damages arising from the taking. Isn't that what the landowners are seeking here? Even if a, under Minnesota's Constitution, if property is taken, damaged, or destroyed, we don't assume destruction of property rights in Minnesota. There has to be facts to back it up. And we do follow, as a question was posed earlier, an order first rule. If a public authority seeks a taking through a petition, the public authority must establish the public purpose and necessity of that taking. If a landowner believes additional property has been damaged, even under the more stringent standards of the Minnesota Constitution, they must present that evidence to the court for an adjudication and for an order. The consequence of not doing that is that the public does not get the property that it is purportedly paying for. 
we have damages owed, and when we look back at the property records, in this case, access would never have been acquired. So does this case boil down to a district court judge's ruling on foundation of expert testimony? As, Justice, as you referred to in the earlier argument, there is a basis for the exclusion of evidence on the foundational aspect here. And in that respect, the standard of review, to answer your question from earlier, is an abuse of discretion standard. So the district court in this case did find that the extraordinary and unsupported assumption made by the appraiser in this case lacked foundation and excluded the appraisal even on that basis. But the lack of foundation was based on their legal interpretation, and it's an abuse of discretion if they got the law wrong, right? Well, that would be correct. That if this if this court determined that there was a legal error, it's a de novo review. You're right. You're well, right. I want to go back to the point you raised earlier about that they, that the opposing counsel is seeking an instruction from the court, and we'll pursue that with him um, when uh, his turn comes up. I just want to ask you about State versus Wheeler, and I'm looking at the. MEDI um, amicus brief, and they cite it as, a, as a authority for the proposition that inconvenience from a taking is a proper element of damages in arriving at the depreciation of the market value of the entire property. Does the state disagree with that proposition? The, I think the, the proposition needs to be looked at within the broader scope of the, the precedent here. We have severance damages cases out there. We have Wheeler, we have Hayden Miller that looks at the before and after test for how we determine market value. We're taking a willing buyer and a willing seller and looking at the property before the taking and after the taking. If the property has been somehow made more inconvenient or somehow different in the after, there's no, MnDOT doesn't disagree that there's severance damages, that there's severance damages owed for those difference in market value. That's not a contentious issue. That's not a point that's here. What is uh, the issue here, and the only issue here, is whether you can assume a landlocking of the property for 1.5 years and force the public to pay for a landlocking that never happened. There's only a couple of ways that you can actually landlock a property. One is through the vacation process, where you actually obliterate a road in front of a property, and there's a statutory process for that. The other is by petition and order in condemnation. The public can, or a public authority can condemn the right of access and landlock a property, but they would have to pay damages if there were facts alleged for that. None of that is present here. Well, isn't there also, if not a, a, an actual landlocking of the property, a hassle factor where if a developer is going to develop lots, the developer comes up with a potential buyer, and there's just a lot of activity going on at the front of the property. Can't that have an impact on market value? There has to be evidence that the, uh, if you'd say hassle factor, I think the allusion would be to the construction-related interferences would have to arise from changes in the land taken. As this court has outlined in City of Crookston, which was cited affirmatively in Strom, and again in Blaine Building. In all cases, severance damages by this court's decision in uh, Blaine Building must arise from changes in the land taken. So the public and other landowners also endure a hassle factor with construction. But as we know from the Supreme Court that they, a property owner down the road who doesn't have any property taking still has to deal with that hassle factor. Blaine building, the hassle was occurring on the public right-of-way. Here the hassle is occurring partly on the public right-of-way and partly on the private property. Does that make a difference for our analysis? Not in this case because there's no damages allocated for any hassle factor here. 
a look at appellant's appraisal, the entire $305,000 in damages is related to the assumption that the property would not have access for 1.5 years. And there is nothing in the record on the date of taking that's known or knowable, or even after the date of taking, that that would ever occur. And MnDOT did not have the authority under the terms of the easement to deny access in any way. We go back to section S33.2 of the project contract. That isn't a, a promise that, well, we've taken access, but we'll let you have it through the contract. That's a memorialization by MnDOT through the contract to tell the contractor, we did not take the right of access in this case. You cannot deprive them of reasonable and adequate access during and the project. Make the, make the argument, explain to me the argument that a knowledgeable developer would have knowledge of the construction contract. Mr. Frederick seemed to imply to the contrary. They do not even need to know that. Again, the, the, the evidence that access would not be taken is evident on the face of the order that it authorized the taking in this case. The, the developer could look at the taking. They see, okay, there's 0.71 acres of temporary or of permanent easement and 3.29 acres of temporary easement. Access is not listed. Access should be available. What is the right of access to get in at one point along the road? It's the right to reasonably convenient and suitable access to the main thoroughfare in one direction. And here it's Highway 61. Through one, you know, 50-foot section of the whole frontage. It depends upon the facts and circumstances of the case. In this case, they had one driveway, which was under the undisputed facts in this case, never closed. And that was never taken away. But it seems what they're arguing, and you didn't really kind of answer my question that I asked a while ago, it seems what they're arguing is that a that may be true for the Alberts, and you didn't take their access right because that driveway was going to be kept open, which I think is the only right you're arguing legally that you didn't acquire, at least if you're looking at the order itself. But what they're arguing, I think, is that a developer is going to come in and say, well, for my highest and best use to develop these lots, I need much more access than that, and I don't know what this construction project is going to look like on the date of the taking, and so that interferes, a developer coming in is going to say, I can't make a prediction about that. And so the taking of the easement itself, it's not a right of access, but a taking of the easement itself is interfering with the developer's right to develop the property because they don't know what the construction is going to look like on the date of the taking. And that's the whole point, I think, of the fullest extent rule. Isn't, I think that's their argument, so why are they wrong? The developer had the same rights before and after the taking and during the project as the Alberts would to apply for a driveway permit in different locations. Nothing changed. And they'd have to be granted a driveway, like 17 or 35 driveway permits? And that's subject to the reasonable regulation under the statute. All driveway application permits would be, have to be subject to review under, uh, I believe it's 160.18. So the right to access isn't absolute. But why any... isn't that damage to the property? That, the, the need to but apply you've for- you've got to apply for 35 driveway permits. Well, they could always apply for 35 driveway permits, and whether that's a... Whether they wouldn't need to if there wasn't the government easement here. The, you always have to apply for a driveway permit to the abutting highway. That's not a result of the taking, and it's not a result of the project. But you don't know if you're going to get it on the day of the taking. You never know before the date of the taking. That's just the, part of the nature of having highway of the public right-of-way. Your position is they had after what they had before, which was a functioning driveway, probably predating MnDOT's, the rules that require permits. 
I mean, they they have one permit, they have one driveway. That's all they get, and the right to apply for other driveway right. permits. And that's it's independent of the uh, condemnation proceeding. Correct, Your Honor. Yeah. That right is independent. So I go back. So so um, I, I kind of agree with the chief here that there's some I, we're ships passing in the night here, and I'm I'm still confused about whether or not the state's position is there is such a thing as construction interference damages, what it looks like, and why what they're seeking here doesn't fit. And to some extent, I'm probably asking you to repeat an argument you've already made, but let's have another go at it. Sure. Can we talk about this? Well, yeah, the, uh, MnDOT here is not arguing against construction-related interference severance damages. It's really not a construction-related interference severance damages case. As in on page 13 of Appellant's reply, they essentially concede by saying they do not claim the construction interference prevented access to the remainder of the property. Strom is the principal case for construction-related interference severance damages, and it is a severance damages. But in that case, the parties stipulated that changes in access resulted in significant disruption and circuity to the, in access to the property. There was damages from noise, dust, vibration that it created a, a stipulated reduced rental rate and damages to the property. All we have here is the assumption that the property is landlocked. And there is no basis for making that assumption Strom didn't allow extraordinary assumptions for a hypothetical non-existent property. That's exactly what Strom cautioned against. And that is, Strom relied upon Olson, and Appellant talked about Olson quite a bit as well. And Olson is the United States Supreme Court case that says, the uh, damages are based on the amount that in all probability would have been arrived at by fair negotiations between an owner willing to sell and a purchaser desiring to buy. To to uh, find for appellants here, you'd have to make the extraordinary assumption that a buyer would concede that the property is landlocked and take a reduction commensurate with the full rental value of 115 or so acres for 1.5 years. Well, counsel, but following up on the Chief Justice's earlier question, is there a disputed issue of material fact here as to how a developer would view what was going on at the front of this property? In other words, I, I understand your position, and I understand the judges, the district court judge's concern that maybe that hasn't been established, but isn't there enough at least to survive summary judgment? There isn't, Your Honor, because that's not the request that they are making. They want a legal instruction. I, I understand. I understand they want the legal, and we'll hear from Mr. Frederick on that. Let's assume, though, that, that their backup position is, hey, there's at least a disputed issue of material fact. For what damages, Your Honor? We look at the breakdown, and it's all so, presented... Something less than $305,000. All other claims in this case, Your Honor, have been resolved by stipulation. If you review appellant's appraisal in this case, there are several categories of damages that are presented. The first is for the permanent taking. That is resolved by the stipulation. The second is for the damages stemming from the temporary easement, also included and resolved in the stipulation for judgment. The third, loss of vegetative buffer, activities within the temporary easement I, and the removal I, I of trees. I know what damages have been resolved. Okay. Now go to, go to the construct, alleged construction interference. Isn't there a disputed issue of material fact on how a reasonable, knowledgeable developer would view what's going on at the front of the property? No. The only evidence in the record pertaining to the $305,000 is the assumed loss of access. That is the only basis 
that has been claimed through the appraisal and for the damages. So Mr. Hoff's expert report didn't have any anything else, just said, I'm assuming it's completely landlocked, and that's it? That is the basis. You look, it says severance damages for assumed loss of access. And it's assumed loss of access for a temporary period of time. Correct, Your Honor. And so it's like the delay in being able to develop the property. That is not the basis for the for the access damages. It is a landlocking. There is no basis for the delay. That's not what was presented in the record. It's but a delay. Isn't it because they're landlocked for a period of time and then they can get in later? I mean, they're <laughs> they aren't landlocked. They're well, not. I understand you're making that argument. No, yeah, assuming that their argument is right. And I guess my other question is, what case can you cite? To, I know that you your argument and it's a I think a legitimate argument that the, our court has not expressed adopted the fullest extent rule or greatest injury, but what case can you point to where a court has rejected that rule? There is no, I, this court, okay, I have not, there, there's no case in mind where that's been rejected except for the fact that in Hendrickson, this court analyzed many different regimes for treating the property right of access. And if this court were to adopt the most injurious method in this case, the fallout from that decision is essentially the obliteration of the right of access on thousands of miles of trunk highway. Because if you accept what appellants say is true, that a taking of easement, permanent, temporary, or fee, destroys the right of access by that power, then MnDOT will suddenly gain the right to access for nothing from all of the highways throughout. Because the basis for the most injurious method is about the power and authority under the rights acquired for uh, in the petition and the order. In this case, if you assume that the right of access, that MnDOT had the authority to deny access under that, then they've gained it in every case that they took an easement. That has never been this court's position, and it doesn't protect landowners. Landowners are far better protected when you have a list of rights within the order granting the petition, and what's not listed, the landowner keeps. Without, without question. To overturn that is a sea change that will have dire consequences to property ownership and... Uh, Has that been the case in Rhode Island, that, they, that, uh, that by taking a temporary easement you've destroyed the right of access? That is exactly what they've held. But and that's that, different has, than what Minnesota holds. But have they had cases where that's the... Have they decided that issue that now you have... You have they treat access differently, Your Honor, to answer your question. In, in Minnesota, there is a robust, decades-long protection for the right of access, where even a fee-taking for highway use still preserves the right of access to abutting landowners, whether or not uh, there, there's a fee-taking. So MnDOT could take every stick in the bundle, and you might think, well, they've taken the right of access. But in Minnesota, abutting owners to the, prop, to the highway still keep that right until it is expressly and explicitly taken by order, and that can be done again by a petition, by a public authority, or through the mandamus procedures from landowners. So to the extent there's concern that during a project uh, there's going to be some deprivation of access to the property owner or to a hypothetical developer, there are remedies available for the developer and the landowner to get compensated for a taking if it actually happens. But as this court over decades has held, we never assume those acts. Under Inree Third Street Improvement in the Riley parcel, this court explicitly said we don't assume future acts by public authorities that result in takings. They must be proven when and if they occur. 
In Johnson Brothers Grocery, this court again said the taking of access was a series of steps that did not arise or come to fruition until it was established. To hold otherwise and to allow an assumed claim for landlocking in this case would call into question decades of this court's precedent on all access cases, starting with Hendrickson, going back to even Underwood, and we would have confusion and far less clarity in property ownership. This court should respectfully affirm the district court and court of appeals exclusion of the damages in every respect, Your Honors. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Mr. Frederick, you have five minutes for rebuttal. Counsel, of course, has conveniently forgotten that we have two claims here. A construction interference came under one motion and then our fullest extent rule. We're not claiming in construction interferences that next, we're necessarily going to be able to establish that access is blocked. It's a construction interference case. We'll put on evidence and it's a jury case, as one of you pointed out. Why would you take away our right to prove up the fact that the construction interferences are going to affect what that highest and best use developer is going to pay for the property? That's the jury issue that's involved in this case. We're not claiming in construction interferences that it necessarily blocks access. That's what he says. He's referring to our other claim that we're making under the fullest. There we want you to decide that there's a taking and a loss of access. Construction interferences, we want the jury to decide, and they threw us out without giving us a right to go to the jury. Counsel, I think it's the position of counsel for the state that even if you've got a construction interference claim, that the entire predicate of the expert's opinion was that there was, the property was landlocked. That is, that there was no right of access. No, no, we're not saying in our construction interference case. I'm not saying whether you're saying. I'm asking if your expert's opinion was predicated on that assumption. This is a trial de novo. The jury hasn't heard from our expert yet. We don't have to try. We don't have to call that expert. We can call anyone in the world that we can qualify. Yeah, but you had a motion for summary judgment, so you kind of have to show your cards at that stage, don't you? Well, sure. And your cards were Mr. Hoff's opinion. No, we have a construction interference claim here. Mr. Hoff was talking about the fullest extent, most injurious use rule. He wasn't speaking to construction interferences. So what's your expert opinion that the construction interferences reduce the value of the property? We're going to bring forward an expert who will testify at the de novo hearing before the jury. We're not bound by what Hoff said. What was your evidence on the motion for summary judgment to that effect? That construction interferences? Reduce the value of the property. Well, I'm taking the position that we get to go to the jury. They have the need to explain that there's no basis. We don't have to show it. We're going to prove it to the jury. Actually, on a motion for summary judgment, to the extent they're alleging you don't have an expert opinion on the valuation from the construction interference, then you've got to come forward with some evidence, some expert evidence, don't you? Why would we not be permitted to show that to the jury? Why would you throw us out on summary judgment? It's a jury question. Counselor, I think what he's trying to say is that in order to 
survive summary judgment, you have to show that there were some damages occurring to the remaining land after the, you know, the taking of the permanent and, and temporary easements that would not have been likely to occur but for that taking, the taking so that the remainder has been, there's something that affected the remainder. Right, that's the construction interference that we're gonna show to the jury. And what is the construction interference? Because my understanding of it is it's that assumed loss of access. No, no, it's not assumed loss of access. It's, it has, okay, it, what is it then? Well, we proved to the jury the before value of the property. We prove, we prove up the highest and best use. Then we show to the court the known or knowable facts that existed at the date of taking that will affect that highest and best use buyer. That's why we have to prove it up at the date of taking because we're not using for it, it's for its highest and best use. I've got 45 seconds. I wanna make the point that Justice Thiessen is on the right page in this case. He's, he's making the point uh, that nowhere in their brief do they cite a case contrary to the fullest extent, most injurious use rule, not in Minnesota, uh, not any place in America, well, and they don't even have a theory as to why it's a bad rule. They have no theory as to why. We have an overwhelming case. We've got the... What, can I just ask, though, what, what is, what's your response to their argument that um, if we adopt, that, that Minnesota's different from other states because we have this identified right of access as a separate property right, and it would basically kind of obliterate that rule. Block, the key word is block. We're, That's we're what I'm asking, yes. Why do you think it doesn't? Why, no, the, the fullest extent, most injurious use rule as applied here does not involve a taking of access. It's a blocking of access. The full use and enjoyment to the most reasonable extent that you can imagine will block access across the easement to the remainder. Necessarily, there is no taking of access involved. We're trying to determine the damages that flow from the taking of the easement all across the front of the property. Go to the Kentucky Fried Chicken case. The, the version of MnDOT in that state said, well, the ordinary rule is if you take uh, an easement, you still have the right of access. But the court said, you, in this case, you took easements all across the front of the property. You know, you took easements, all, you, you blocked through the application of the most injurious extent rule, access to the property. And the fact that take, there was no taking is not involved. Thank you, counsel, your red light's on. It is, thank you. Yes, thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.